Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of So How'd You Get Here? This is season two. We are in our new space with our similar same setup. Similar setup, yeah. I'm Angelo, and this is... Tony. We are your co-hosts, um, and uh, today we have another fantastic guest. Um, he has um, probably written one of my favorite comedy movies of all time, which would be My Cousin Vinny. He is both directed and produced and has written several scripts and uh, that have become gone on to become very good movies uh quotable laughable won some awards um might not know him yet but you're yep, about to you're about i to. would like to welcome today to the show dale Lawner. thanks for coming on buddy and i have a, thanks for having i have me. an yeah. applause for you yeah. just to you know <laughs> so dale one thank you for being here uh it's uh, yeah <laughs> sign out autographs later yeah. um thank you for being here today um i was a a fan of your movies and what you wrote long before I ever knew who you were. So you kind of like one of my childhood fans here and um, I'm excited to get to talk about some of the stuff you worked on, but more importantly than that, how you got uh, where you did. Um, and I'd like to back up and just ask you to start at wherever you'd like. Tell us some, where you're from, how, what brought you out to LA? When did you know you wanted to write? And like g give us some of the juicies, you know, some of the, let us peek behind the curtain. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Born okay. in Cleveland, but moved here when I was very young, uh, largely because my dad wanted to pursue an acting career. Oh, okay. So he was uh, active in Cleveland Playhouse. I think it's called Cleveland Little Theater. Mm -hmm. And uh, his brother, he had an older brother, my Uncle Sam, had moved out here. And uh, he did kind of a what we call a recce. And he came out here by himself um, uh, just to explore the waters. And uh, while he was out, he went up for an audition. Uh, and he got a small part in a AIP movie. So his first couple of movies, I think, were all horror films. Right. Okay. Right. Um, uh, How old were you at this point? The most, most notable role would have been as the main creature in Creature with the Atom Brain. Ooh. Can't wait for that remake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, what's phenomenal about that, well, very little phenomenal about that, but what's kind of interesting, um, is it was written by the same guy who wrote The Wolfman. Oh, wow. Uh, and later there was a, uh, a musician, a Texas-based uh, well-known, well-regarded uh, amongst Texas musicians called uh, Rocky Erickson. Hmm. And he had a band called Rocky Erickson and the Aliens. And I remember driving in my car back in the 70s and hearing a song and thinking I was high, maybe was high, um, which was uh, a song called Creature with the Atom Brain, huh. uh, which actually got radio play twice. Wow. So it, it, twice. it sort of went twice. Away. That was it. Twice. Yeah, no, 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 no. It was not played twice. But but he had some radio play. I think in the late seventies, and then again in the early eighties, where it had sort of minor success. Oh, okay. That's yeah, a, a little. So bit. because your uncle moved Trivia. out here, your dad was like, "Might as well give it a shot as well." Yeah. So he got. And a you job said you called that a recce. Uh, reconnaissance. Oh, reconnaissance. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Something okay. When you're in the movie business, um, you'll do a recce's. Um, where you go out looking for locations uh, or uh, information. Got it. You know, research. Got you. Got you. And so, so you um, you were kind of 
excited to come out here, or did you want to stay back in Cleveland? I was well, a year old. Oh, oh then you had no yeah, say. No say. Yeah, no <laughs> say. Did your dad find success when he got out here? Um, yeah, if you look at IMDb, ask yep. John Lawner, you'll 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 look at it and go, wow, this guy worked a lot. Yeah. Um, but and and not until there was IMDb did I realize how much my dad actually worked. Oh wow. I mean, I know he worked now and then, but but seeing the amount of credits he had was like probably three times as much as is I this he did. during the time where people got like um, contracts at studios, and and was he working on like westerns? Like, oh, what no, was he yeah, doing? No, no, he was a bit. A oh, bit, was a bit player, a bit part. Okay, character actor. Yeah, got it. Uh, but, uh, small parts, like um, small but pivotal at times. Um, uh, he was the uh, judge on. I think 33 episodes of Perry Mason. Wow. Uh, like I said, The Creature. Yeah. And The Creature with the Adam Brain. Uh, he was the father of the monster, of the werewolf's girlfriend in I Was a Teenage Werewolf. So he's getting work. Yeah. Yeah. Now, were you always into, like, did you want to act? So were you, like, always had, like, that Not really. No? Not really. I think I had it in me, and I think all writers do to some yeah. degree, because you have to act out, you, you improv uh, characters in, mm-hmm. in your mind. Sometimes you do it out loud, mm-hmm. but uh, you, know, you do that. So that's how you write dialogue. So when we were doing some research on you, we, so we saw that you moved to California. You ended up going to Cal State Northridge. Was there a film program there that you got into? It was called RTVFF, RTVF, Radio TV Film. So they bunched them all together. Okay. How and many? You, oh, sorry. How many in that in that group? I mean, you're talking like a small film. Yeah, it was team? small. It yeah. was small. Okay. Okay. With a focus on, did you know? Like, I want to write. I, I think there was like maybe five teachers. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Maybe. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then you're growing up around film, film production. Or did you get to go on set with Dad? Did Did you start to see some things that you're like, hey, I like this? Was it a I went on set once, and I think that was Perry Mason. And uh, it was pretty boring. <laughs> uh, it was fun, though. It was yeah. interesting, but it was, it was pretty boring. But, you know, he, on Perry Mason, he would have uh, – I, I would tease him that he'd get the script for Perry Mason, and I would hold it up like Karnak, you know, which is a, a Johnny Carson bit where, uh, you know, he would hold something up in – kind of tell you what's in it or give you an answer. Right, right. And I would say, court will be adjourned until 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. And those are... Those are his... Good chance that was his line. Yeah, he got paid for that. (laughs) (laughs) He's taking your credit. Uh, Well, you were already writing at that point, it sounds like. Which, by the way, um, I had a teacher, a writing teacher, screenwriting teacher in Cal State Mm Northridge. And I got to say, the class kind of thought he was a bit of a jerk. And uh, I remember he started out the first day, said that he, I think he said that he wrote the pilot of Perry Mason and he was a producer of Perry Mason. Well, there was no IMDb back then, so you really couldn't check people's credits. People could say anything they wanted. And I remember raising my hand and saying, wasn't Gail Patrick Jackson, Jackson the producer of Perry Mason? So I caught him in a lie. Uh, on my first day. Yeah. So immediately uh, got an F. So you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was his response? 
his response, uh, he kind of backtracked and said that he was a co-producer of the pilot. Ah. But she was the producer of the show for the duration of the show. And he said that without knowing anything about your dad or, or any, yeah. Absolutely nothing. Called him out. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah. Um, How did you like that class? Did you end up getting? A B. A B. Yeah. So screenwriting came. Yeah. <laughs> st- st- and then he would brag that I was his student. And right. So he, you know, once you got me. success. Yeah. 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 So when did you end up getting like your first jobs? Like, right. Oh, there's an, another funny story. Yeah, think, please. Which, which is uh, there was two screenwriting classes. And the first one, I can't remember his name, remember his last name. He was a son of Jan Murray. Jan Murray was a. Uh, a comedian. I think he was a Borscht Belt comedian, and then he ended up um, with a TV show. He was a TV show host of, I think it was called Treasure Hunt. Mm-hmm. And um, there was, he tried to, uh, as it, right at one point, he, he asked us to write like an, a monologue, right? It's like, it's bad enough trying to be creative. You know, to to do creative writing, right. actually create things. That's going to be terrifying if you haven't done it before. But to come up with a monologue, to come up and be funny. So there was a a TV show. I think Sonny and Cher had a variety show. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I came up with a joke. And it was something about um, uh, his choice of garlic chewing gum. Okay. And um, and so the professor, the, the teacher, called this out and said this is not a good joke because it has to do with sort of like bodily functions and it's just not something tasteful. It's you know, maybe a little disgusting or something. So he called it out, said this is a bad joke. Then cut to how many years later? Many years later. <laughs> I'm watching a special Sonny and Cher show, and I'm watching it, and sure enough, they have the garlic chewing gum joke, right? And I got a laugh. Um, and I'm waiting for the credits, and sure enough, his name is in the credits. Come right? on. And so... <laughs> Did you call him up? Yeah. <laughs> hey. uh, no, no, even better. Well, you get oh, re- oh, you get yeah, yeah, yeah. So later... Um, when, when my career started to kick into gear, uh, Ruthless People had been made, it came out. And then I was uh, on the set in the south of France with Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And I was invited up to uh, have lunch with a group of people on a yacht in Saint-Tropez. And I'm there, and one of the guests uh, is Jan Murray. So the father of the guy who stole the my joke. joke. Yeah. Right. So I get to, like, get him in trouble with his dad, right? And Jan Murray thought that was hilarious. That's you awesome. Know? He grounded him. He's like a little kid, you know, calling up and telling your parents. Yeah. Anyways, you literally just dropped two huge gems, Ruthless People, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Before we get to that, you graduated. Were you already screenwriting? Were you already? I didn't graduate. But, but you didn't graduate. Yeah. yeah. I went four years. Uh, I, I had a light load. I went with 12 credits a year. So I was lazy. But were you already writing scripts trying to sell? Or did you want to direct? I don't think I – no, I had not written my first script in college. I had written uh, a, a couple of short films. Okay. Um, that was about it. 
And this is around what, like the late seventies? Are you trying to like or mid seventies? Mid seventies, yeah. So was ruthless people the first thing that actually got made? Oh God, no. Oh, oh, first thing got made. Yeah, not the first thing I wrote. Right. I wrote about ten scripts before that. So, any of those sold? No, no, no. So just constantly writing, Didn't grinding. Didn't show to anybody. Oh. Yeah. So how do you end up getting that break terrified with, with ruthless people then? <laughs> terrified someone would read it, right, and not like it. You know. Better they don't read it, then it's possible they might like it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. I'm going to have to start remembering <laughs> yeah, that one. That's right. <laughs> well, if, if you could. Okay, so you'd written 10 scripts and you make your first big sale. Can you walk us through a little bit of that? I mean, you're writing for several years then, probably not making a lot of money. I Somewhere I heard you were working on, or maybe you even just said that, you were working on stereos or... Um, working with electronics, yeah, I, like I, what I realized is that before uh, you made it, what, what did that look uh, like? If I wanted a career in the movie business, and that was to write and direct movies, uh, my inspiration was uh, Woody Allen's "Take the Money and Run." Okay, um, not that I loved the movie. I didn't love the movie. I kind of liked the movie. I actually didn't think it was that good, and it wasn't a real movie movie. And I thought, you know, I could be. I think I could be that funny. Mm-hmm. And that or, was or funnier. Yeah, or funnier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he became funnier, you know. Right. And, uh, you know, I also wanted to make movies that were a little more, uh, that was a pretty wild-ass kind of structure, you know. Um, uh, I wanted to make something that was a little more uh, story-based. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I uh, quit college. And figured, uh, I was still living at home. I figured I'd get to get out there and have a life. So uh, I went out for a job uh, to work in a lab. I had a, a, a Bolu R16B motion picture camera. And uh, I wanted to make movies, right? So, um, but uh, the cost of film was a lot of money and the cost of processing was a lot of money. So I went to try to get a job in a lab. They said, come back in a week or two weeks or something. And then I left that, and then I stopped off at a stereo store to kick some tires because I like music and I like stereo equipment. And um, and uh, as soon as they opened the door, they said, can I help you? I just said, I'm looking for a job. So I ended up uh, qualifying. I remember, I remember lying about my experience to the owner of the company, Peter Huber, who was the university stereo. And I told him uh, that I had worked up in Palo Alto. I'd never even been to Palo Alto. <laughs> and you're a producer on uh, Perry Mason. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he uh, ended up, I mean, while I'm in the interview, asked me what the name of the, of the place was. And this is horrible, right? I'm, clearly I'm caught in a lie. And I'm just building the lie. So I told him, I, Bay Area Stereo. And so he called up. There was no Bay Area Stereo. I said, I know they were thinking of changing it, you know, um, to it's just bullshit, yeah. whatever it was. And uh, is this where you come up with the fine. Jerry Callow jokes <laughs> in My Cousin Vinny? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Making it yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> it's working. Yeah. So, um, but I finally, get, but I got the job anyway. So. And what um, did he hire? You? I mean, just just from the guts as, to as, come in and do it. Well, he didn't. I, I don't think he thought I was lying. Because you're so you know, convincing. I, I guess I was yeah. convincing somehow. So I got a job as a stereo salesman, and I was terrible at first. And uh, 
And then I learned to become a salesman, um, which was an interesting process. Huh? Yeah. Um, How long were you I, I was also job? terrible at writing screenplays at first, uh, but I stuck at it. And uh, but, but this job was, was so was grueling. This job was solely to help you want to make movies. Yes, to make money. Uh, to make one money. to move out of the house because they're still living with my parents. Right. So you know, I'm gonna gotta go out and start to have a life. Yeah. A little bit, you know. So are uh, you still living in the valley, or did you move more towards like I was, L.A.? I was living in the valley. Uh, I there was a guy who owned a house and rented out rooms. So uh, I took a rented out room, hmm. and uh, it was a weird experience. Yeah. To say. Then I started working. Then I found a one bedroom apartment. And uh, that was different, you know. So from the from the time of getting a steady job that can pay you, yeah, you're beginning to write at this point seriously, where you're sticking with it and you're trying. Yeah. How how long is that process? What did what did that look like? The process from from um, beginning to write. Obviously, you said you yeah. wrote ten scripts or so before yeah. you made uh, before a big before a break happens. But I'm interested in in the in that quiet moment when you're not making a lot of money, well, probably the, not. I would say the time between I started writing an actual screenplay. Um, I remember when I was working at the stereo store, uh, I met a guy who worked for, um, um, I call it ENG. ENG is what it, what it became. Um, before there was uh, video cameras, there was film cameras, uh, news cameras, and they shot 16 millimeter. And I'm not sure he worked somewhere at a network and he could give me free processing. Oh. And there was a film stock, a reversal film stock that I could get processed. And and, uh, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll shoot it in that stock because it's that cheap, right? So I, at the time, I wanted to do a kind of an Alice in Wonderland story. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, but I don't think I'd actually start. I might've started the script. I might've had notes, um, but that didn't really go anywhere anyhow. But I worked selling stereo for about a year and then I uh, quit and finagled away to get on unemployment. And while on unemployment, uh, I wrote my first, I think two scripts. Hmm. So that was really my school. Got it. So it just struck uh, you like it was, it was hard working at a job and coming home and writing. Yeah. And I remember reading somewhere that says, "Well, if you want to do that, you get up early in the morning." I'm not an, a morning person, okay. <laughs> and the idea of like waking up to an alarm clock and then working on a script that, that, that would seem like going to hell. So you do do that when you're on a film, though. Yes. So, yeah, you have to. You have to. Yeah, okay. Well, you you kind of have you get, to. You're getting paid for it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All yeah. Right. yeah. But if you're producing it yourself and you go, I want to do every day to be a split. And a split is where you shoot part of the day uh, in the afternoon and then you shoot in the evening. And you, you know, break for, for dinner. So you can do splits and then you can sleep in. Okay. I like a little idea. bit more expensive. Like but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you got in the first two pancakes the first two things you just got them out you knew you could do it you could you could write a screenplay from start to finish whether or not it sells or you liked it yeah. that's another issue but but you you start to find your feet are are you circling around stories that you like 
Is I there, am. I was a big are you fan. discovering things about yourself? That I, I was a big fan of Alfred Hitchcock and Stanley Kubrick. Mm. So uh, the the earliest things I wrote would have been in that vein. Um, so I think the very first screenplay I finished, I think it was called The West Side Horror, and it was about a uh, serial murder. Mm. Uh, this is before Halloween, you know, the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Carpenter movies. And uh, um, I had that. I'm not sure what the second or the third one were, so, but, but I do remember so how did you get how did you yeah. get out of that genre and start writing more towards like the ruthless people style? Um, that was after I had that one bedroom apartment, and I then moved into a house with two friends who were musicians, right? Aspiring, aspiring musicians, and we um, while there uh, watching the news, um, there was this big. Uh, crime event uh, known as the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Mm-hmm. And and then there was a point where Patty Hearst joined her kidnappers, which I found ironic, even humorous. Yeah. So, um, and so that she could became have been in on the it. basis of it. Right? Yeah. So, uh, and so that was the basis of it. And then uh, the beginning of the story uh, you know, uh, a woman who does not, you know, who joins her kidnappers. Um, and then it became a little more complicated. But the idea that someone went, would go home to kidnap uh, a woman and uh, her husband doesn't want her back. Right? right. And then that turned into, well, what if he wanted to kill her? What if he went home to kill her? Right. And so all that just became funnier. Yeah. The idea itself was funny. So you're writing, but you're not really that. In, like, the Hollywood world, I guess? Not at all. How'd you get an agent? How did you... Were you submitting screenplays to people? Did you have a friend of a friend? Did you know anyone in town? Yeah. Uh, Now, at the time when I mentioned that, I lived in the Valley. That was Woodland Hills. And then I moved out to Santa Monica. Um, Sorry. Uh, Still working on scripts. And uh, uh, it was a painful period. Still worked. Still writing. Not showing them to anybody. Then I moved to Venice. Mm-hmm. And while in Venice, I remember uh, submitting a screenplay to Tony Bill's production company. It was the only production company that would accept unsolicited screenplays. That means uh, screenplays that uh, have no representation. Uh, screenplays have no, no yeah. representation, uh, right, no agent. So. Um, uh, it got rejected, uh, but I lived in a fourplex, and downstairs on the other side uh, was a guy named Kit Stoltz. Kit was a reader for MGM at the time, so I gave the script uh, t- to uh, Kit, and Kit liked it, gave it to his story editor, and I remember going over to Kit, you know, like, the next day, what'd she think? Well, she hasn't read it yet. She's going to put it on weekend read. Okay, so Monday, you know, I go over yeah. to kids. I said, well, "So what happened?" She said, "Well, she hadn't yet. She hasn't read it yet." You're like, "What weekend is this?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what weekend? She's gonna read it. So uh, the again a week later, I you know on Monday, I, has she read it? No, not yet, not yet. <laughs> so it got into six weeks, and um, 
And then on that Monday, um, I could see Kit walking over to me. He wasn't smiling. And I figured this is bad news. And it was. He says, well, she read it. She didn't like it. She didn't like the premise. And she thought the writing was amateurish. So... It's a pretty big blow. Yeah, yeah, that was tough. So, so if you're afraid of rejection, it's kind of like, whoop. but uh, pick something you know, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, that was tough. And uh, interesting enough, now Kit had a friend, uh, Dan Ackerman. Dan, uh, and they met at a laundromat, right? And Dan was an aspiring screenwriter. And um, you know, sometimes I'd sit down at, at Kit's. Um, and a couple of other of Kit's friends, including Dan and a guy named Jim Genowine. Um, and we'd sit around, drink beer, and we'd talk about uh, music and movies and politics. And, um, and then Dan got a job as a reader for these producers. I don't know how he got the job, um, but as an intern slash reader, you know, an unpaid position for uh, Joanna Lancaster, who was the daughter of Burt Lancaster, and Richard Wagner. Hmm. Uh, they were an aspiring wannabe producing team. And I think they actually had a movie called Little Treasures, uh, which was going to be made. So, and so um, he asked me, oh, okay. They were friends with this other guy, who was a manager who had gotten a new client named Sylvia Christel. You ever heard of her? No. There was this uh, series of what they would call softcore porn movies, um, um, Emmanuel. Uh, it was in the 70s or the 80s. And she was the star. And um, she wanted a... Now, uh, the manager, the new manager... Uh, was to take her career and her fame and take it to the next level and was looking for a breakthrough screenplay to show that she actually had acting jobs. And um, so Dan said, do you have anything that would be good for her? Well, I had something that was um, a little Pygmalion-ish um, about a guy who meets a... Uh, a, a a playwright who meets a streetwalker mm -hmm. uh, and uh, grooms her uh, as a bet um, to be a um, to be something anyway to be something prominent in society and um, you know and there are specific rules in there so anyway so I had this idea um, Dan told Richard Richard Dan and I went out to lunch went out to dinner uh, I pitched. The story, which it actually I had it half written at the time, uh, he liked it and uh, wanted to see a writing sample. So I gave him this one script, which I'd written on spec, called Take This Job and Shove It. It's based on the song. And then this other, which was uh, an untitled kidnapping script, which I didn't like the last half. So I gave him the first half, and I said, it's going to be more like that. And I do remember coming home to my answering machine flashing. I wish I had saved the tape. Um, and he said, I read the writing sample of this kidnapping script. And he was like laughing as he was leaving the message. He was delighted. And uh, Joanna had, had read it too. And they just thought it was so dark and so funny and just 
deliciously mean. And um, they didn't want to talk about the other story. They wanted uh, to talk about the Pygmalion story. They didn't want that anymore. No, no, no. They they got sidetracked. Yeah. So they wanted me to finish it. And so they paid me. Uh, This is where I become a professional writer. Yeah. uh, To uh, option the script and pay me to finish it. And then they had what they called a step deal. Um, which is that there's certain steps and you get paid for each step. So if I, uh, if when I finish it, I get a check. Uh, they read it, then they give me notes. I get another check to start. When I turn that in, I get another check. Then they give me notes. And so I remember... Um, You're like, this isn't a bad way to make a living. This is not a bad yeah. way. And we were negotiating the deal... And it went back and forth. And while it was going back and forth, these things take a while. And I was a very fast writer at the time. Uh, I finished the script. And um, and I told him I finished the script. He said, can I read it? I said, no, that's not the deal. The deal is uh, yeah. you got to pay me. There's steps. Right? Yeah. You know, you got the check. Let yeah. me know when the check is done. <laughs> yeah, But the deal has to be done. For, so when the deal is done, really I went in to sign it. They had a check there. I gave him the script. Um, that had to feel good. It did, and it, it actually fulfilled this really neurotic, insane fantasy I had of of uh, writing a script that was so good that they would pay you to right. finish it. Right. right? So you, you only give them half; they'll pay you to read the rest. You know, and that kind of worked that way. So that was great. And this was Ruthless People. This was Ruthless People. And what, is this 1980 now? 1979? No, no, no. Let me see. Ruthless People came out around 86. That was early 80s. No, it was 86. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least So so this was, let me see, uh, around 84. Okay. I think this was around 84 when it happened. Might have been late 83. Now, are you learning a little bit more about the business now? Like, okay, I wrote the script. They paid me the script. Now they own the script. I'm done. Like, are you still involved in the in the process at all? Oh, yeah. No, no. <clears throat> I, I was. No, I turned it in. Uh, we did a number of drafts. Um, they had notes. Uh, I would come back. They were always uh, impressed with how quick I was. Because sometimes I, we would meet, like, on a Tuesday. They would give me notes and a check. And then I'd turn it in on a Thursday. You like those checks? Right? Yeah. <laughs> those checks were great. Yeah. yeah. So I'm making money. Yeah, it was right. fantastic, yeah. right? I'm making money writing screenplays. It was it was heaven. So um, Did your writing get even faster the more the the further you get into the rewrites? Because uh, you you're probably making smaller changes at that point. Uh, I actually made significant changes. Okay. Okay. Um, but I was fast. You know, I mean, and they were giving you accurate notes. There was no internet to distract you. There right. was no cable TV to distract you. Um, you just worked. Yeah, yeah, you worked. Just wrote, yeah. yeah. But I still had a social life too. I remember. Well, now you have money. Yeah, <laughs> you can go exactly. out and do stuff. That was great. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, uh, um. Uh, I'm sorry. What was your question again? Oh, I just wanted to know. Uh, well, I just wanted to know how how fast you were able to to write. But it sounds like they were giving you... Yeah, yeah. This, this actually comes up later in the story, but I don't know if I can tell you now. Yeah, go for it. Um, after the script had been written, uh, 
it, it was option. Well, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. But later on in, in, in the story, but just before the movie was made, uh, when Disney had it and the Zucker brothers uh, were attached to direct, and uh, you know they had never really directed a movie movie. Um, so their notes were, to me, uh, it almost appeared somewhat random as to what I was supposed to do when I went off to rewrite it, because I did a few drafts, and the studio had rejected them. Um, and then um, they gave me some notes, and uh, I told them, and, and we're about to make the movie, too, mm -hmm. but there's no shooting script, right? Um, and I said, listen, I, this is probably going to piss you off a bit, but uh, I'm not I'm going to ignore your notes. I'm going to do a draft that I know I will like, the producers will like, you will like, and the studio will like. And uh, they were trying to fire me right then and there. And, um, I mean, they were actively looking for other writers to fire me. They were furious, right? Everybody was furious. The line producer, uh, Michael Pizer, uh, was furious. The studio was, a, was angry. The directors were angry. Um, and uh, I turned the draft in I, within 48 hours to the producers. They had a couple of notes. I did that overnight, and so it was really about three days and turned it in, and uh, they were, A, amazed that... It, the turnaround, yeah. The turnaround time. Yeah. Um, and that it actually worked. So they, they were ecstatic. So they're not looking to fire you anymore at not this point. <laughs> so does the, that end up being the shooting script? There was something, yeah. Yeah. So the producer, uh, Richard Wagner, I remember him telling me that, one, A, I was fast, and B, uh, a lot of other writers, they'll go in and the changes that they do um, were insignificant. There was just like little tiny things. Uh, whereas I would actually have whole new scenes. Yeah. I would, I would do an actual rewrite, you know, in a couple of days, whereas they were giving this to people and would give them a month and there was almost no change. But it, it's uh, obviously also, also what, what he said is, uh, I would humiliate him with his notes and it became, it was, it was an amusing thing, mm -hmm. but, uh, um, but he would give me a note, and I would, like, insult him, and he would laugh. And he says, the difference between you and the other writers are working with yeah, is you will not do what we ask you to. You'll come up with something better, but you'll interpret what we were after and give us something better, whereas the other writers actually do our ideas, and it's terrible. So... Uh, uh, and so I realized that later. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg said something like that, too. So so you know how to translate the note that by itself isn't very yeah, good. Yeah, trying to figure out what, right. but what are you that, really going... It's a horrible idea, yeah. you, know? you know? And it's a horrible idea that came from another movie, you know? And so, so one of the reasons you see a lot of bad movies uh, has to do with the fact that, you know, the writer is um, what I would call a hack writer. A hack writer uses materials, ideas, tropes, characters from other movies and doesn't change them. It's just recycled. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, that's, that's, 
that's very common, but, but I try not to do that. So, well, you're, you're, I think, yeah, that's risky to take that stance, but if you're right, if it's actually better and you're fast at what you do, yeah, I think that wins out over it helps. just complying. Yeah. The speed it, helps because otherwise they're sitting, they're sitting there percolating, you right. know, looking for more. Yeah, yeah. And, then, yeah. and, then, and then when you turn it in, they go, oh, okay, this, this will work. So it comes out in 86. Are you happy with what is on screen to like from Hated page, it. page to screen? Hated it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that was honest. I respect that, yeah. that. Oh, yeah. No, I remember watching it at, at a screening and literally I was sweating bullets. I mean, I couldn't believe how sweaty I was. <laughs> it was just and so aggravating. And the editor was sitting next to me and uh, I kept doing this. <sighs> And he just got up and moved way on the other side of it, <laughs> to the other side of the theater. Then listen to me. But it did well. It did. But you still hated it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> the best soundbite well, I've heard I, I, all week. I enjoyed the fact that it was successful. Of course. I enjoyed the reviews. and Yeah. I enjoy reading the reviews, the right. good reviews. But all of the criticisms were stuff that you had no control every over. Every single one. Yeah was uh, 99, usually I would get the blame, and it was not my fault. Yeah. Or there was something they didn't like, and it was something I was trying to change. So I just wanted a movie that was, I would say, less broad, mm-hmm. uh, a little more sophisticated, a little more, uh, a little more reality-based. So the uh, success of that, does that lead to you getting writing jobs, or are you like, listen, I already have my next idea in line? You already started writing. I was getting uh, offers for writing jobs before Ruthless was oh, okay. made. When Ruthless people, what happened is I was rewriting for Joanna and Richard, Joanna Lancaster and Richard uh, uh, Wagner. And uh, uh, we had heard that there was a similar script about someone who was kidnapped enjoying her kidnappers. Uh, which eventually got made, actually, which is interesting. Um, I haven't seen it, but it, but it got made. And it was... Uh, so we realized we got to get out there, okay? And their script was at Paramount. Mm-hmm. Um, their agents were at ICM. So their agent was really more of a talent agent than a literary agent. He's more of an actor's agent. He was uh, Burt Lancaster's agent. And uh, shotgun the script. That means they make copies of it and they send it to every financing entity in town. Um, and that was essentially was every studio, right? So um, uh, every studio but Paramount. And here's the irony of this. I guarantee you that weekend, none of the studios read the script except Paramount. Hmm. And specifically at Paramount, I know exactly what happened. David Hoberman called up Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was a senior vice president mm-hmm. at the time, and said, there's a script that's going out to everybody but you because you have a competing project. And so uh, Jeffrey wanted to read it. So apparently you got a hold of it. Hoberman uh, – personally delivered it to Katzenberg. Uh, and what I'm told is that Katzenberg read it and thought, this is better than our script. Um, so later, 
when uh, Disney decides to become modern and uh, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg leave Paramount to go run it. Right. Um, they had let it be known to the producers uh, if that project goes into turnaround, if Ruthless People goes into turnaround, we're interested. And um, the project, see I'm backing up a little bit, we had shotgunned the script. It was rejected by everybody in town. Then, a couple weeks later, I think it was, maybe a month later, uh, in one week, apparently the David Geffen Company uh, had read it. Now, they had already rejected it. Um, but their story editor, Linda Obst, and Eric Eisner, the president, had not read the script. Um Eric Eisner was having lunch with Jeff Sanford, uh, uh, who, had, who was a literary agent, a, a small boutique literary agency. Um, asked him if you have anything. Apparently he said, yeah, well, here's something. Uh, I don't represent the writer. I'd like to represent the writer. And gave it to um, Eric. Eric loved the script. Um, told Linda Obst about it. Linda read it. She loved it. Uh, they ended up firing their... Reader, which is something I wanted to get around town because I wanted any reader to pick up my script mm -hmm. and go, if I reject this, I could lose my job. So I, somehow I like that. It's horrible. <laughs> but, but, but is it I, better hey, to be honest. loved or feared? Yeah, 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 yeah right? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be better. They go, I, you read the script. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm reading this stuff. Yeah, I'll yeah, lose yeah. my job. That's right. So... Um, Um, then Richard Wagner, who was one of my producers, was friends with, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm drawing a blank okay. here. We don't, uh, um, we could go back there because she'll be insulted if I forget her name. Um, uh, Rhonda Gomez. Okay. Uh, Rhonda Gomez, who was a literary agent, um, and she lived with a, an A-list director named Howard Zeef. And uh, Richard gave it to her. She liked it. Now, in the same week, we got a call. She gave it to him on a Sunday. Monday morning, she calls Richard. She says, Howard started reading the script. He really likes it. We got a call Tuesday morning. Howard is halfway through the script. I think he wants to option it. Then we got a call on Wednesday. <laughs> Howard has almost finished the script. He wants to option it, right? He had a deal at Columbia. To this day, I have no idea if he ever if he ever finished the script, right? right? Um, but he uh, wanted to, and so suddenly a script that nobody wanted is now in the middle of a bidding war uh, with an A-list director and arguably the most prestigious film production company uh, in Hollywood which is the David Geffen Company. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just didn't make bad movies. So uh, so that was exciting. Now, they wanted some rewrites, which were heavy rewrites. Uh, Howard thought it was a little too... Uh, a little too nasty. He wanted to clean it up a little bit. So to me, it, it's like one side wanted to take the brains out and the other side wanted to take the balls out. So I figured... Okay, 
I'll, I'll emasculate it a little bit, but I want it to be smarter. Um, so we went with Howard. Uh, I rewrote it for Howard. Um, Howard uh, couldn't uh, seem to make up his mind what he wanted or didn't want. It was a very frustrating experience for me because now I'm a professional screenwriter. Mm-hmm. And he would look at a script and say, um, he would look and laugh at it and then say, ah, yeah, but we got to cut that out. And then go to the next page, you know, and then he'd have a problem and I would come up with a solution and he'd go, uh, I don't know. And then go off to the next problem. And this just made me, put me literally into depression. Yeah. Um, which Very indecisive. Saying, very indecisive. Horrendously indecisive. I mean, like a character. I once tortured him said, saying, you know, I'm going to, for your birthday, I'm going to get you six pairs of socks all different colors. You're going to sit at the edge of your bed staring into your sock drawer going, uh, blue, uh, brown, uh, black. So that's what I had imagined. Anyhow, um, the stopped writing for him. Then uh, the script went to turn around and Disney said, we want it. Don't shop it anywhere or, or we won't buy it. And they were really hardballing this one. Uh, I was in Paris at the time. Um, With all that writing money. All that writing <laughs> money, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hanging out. Wasn't that much because I took a charter flight on the way over, you know, where you're sitting like this. You, you know, didn't go first for, class? For 11 hours. Uh, I, I wasn't making that kind of money. Oh, not yet, not yet. Okay. Yeah, right. no. There's, the reason I tell you that story is because because now you fly on private jets i was at a <laughs> i was at a hotel in paris and i wasn't there but a, a day or two uh when i get a call from david hoberman disney company um they said we want you to get you back here immediately start working on the script so i'm like are you gonna pay for the flight well they have to because i'm now in the writer's guild mm-hmm. and the writer's guild says they got to pay first class you know, nice. when available. On the way back, first class. So, on yeah. the way back, Air France, first class. It so, you went there a peasant, you came back time. a king. Exactly. It well was done. Great. It was great. So, when you say Disney, the Disney company, is this when they started that whole touchstone? Yeah. They had their own division of more mature movies? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hoberman ended up becoming president of Touchstone. Touchstone? Yeah. So, yeah. So, this was their second movie. The first one was Down and Out Beverly Hills. Oh, another funny one. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that came out critically success, financially successful. You hated it when it was on screen. Ruthless people. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then now you're on to Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yeah. Is that I mean, the next project? Bad, every bad review I agreed with, <laughs> and every good review was like lucky. Yeah. You know. And most of those had nothing to do with what you wanted. You would have fixed it. You would have done it differently. Yeah. And that's what you're getting the credit for is what they didn't like, even though. You didn't really uh, have I, I find the it. directors uh, will get the credit. The writer gets the blame. Right. So there's stuff in there where uh, they're almost to a T. Uh, in every review, they, they would get uh, accolades that the, the writing deserved. Uh, and to their credit, the Zucker brothers uh, kind of went out of their way to say, you know, he deserves credit for this. This is a really good script. Well, that's nice. So that was nice. Yeah. Yeah. And so at this point, um, 
you've got a couple of successful things under your belt, even if you didn't like them. People are paying f- for your writing skills. They're flying you. What, uh, what, give us the run-up for My Cousin Vinny. Yeah, I said, you know, what was different about that, what was fascinating about that is before Ruthless People was made, um, it had been circulated around town because people actually enjoyed reading it. Hmm. Uh, so I was on fire as a screenwriter. Uh, and I was an unproduced screenwriter. And, uh, but I was being asked to write, I met, I thought everybody, you know. So I knew vice presidents and some of the presidents at every studio in town at that point. And that was before Ruthless People got made. Uh, I love good food. I still do. And I do remember, uh, I had a reputation of this. Um, I would get a studio executive or an agent and said, can we take you out to lunch or dinner? I said, either. It's fine. Where would you like to go? I said, where can we go? They said, we can go anywhere. I said, are you on an expense account? I said, yeah. So we can go to a nice place? Yeah. Can we go to L'Hermitage? They go, sure. So that's what I I remember. I remember. Well, even if they don't make the movie, you're getting a good meal out of it. I'm getting a good meal. I had this reputation that when it came to putting, when my name was on an expense account, um, it, it was expensive, okay, that, that, that I had somehow insisted on going to good restaurants, but it was something like they didn't have to pay for it. Yeah. We can have a free meal. Your company's paying for it, your agency or the studio. So let's do it. Um, so I gained about 10 pounds. Ah, that, that's the moral that's of the story. That's I remember, yeah. <laughs> There's another story, uh, uh, which which I remember at the time. Uh, Linda Obst, who was story editor at the Geffen Company, um, would have parties, and I would meet people in the motion picture business, right? And so it was like the first Hollywood party I would go to. And, uh, and I remember around that time, I got a call from Ricardo Mestres, who was a senior vice president at Paramount, and who asked me to lunch. And I, the first time I had lunch at the Paramount Commissary, this is really fun stuff, you know. So if you're like, you know, you're looking to break in these walls and right. all of a sudden you can't get in. You don't know how do I scale these walls. And all of a sudden you go up and the doors open and everybody wants you, everybody's smiling. And, and you know, and I get to go to the commissary and, and, and I realize there's two commissaries. There's sort of the executive commissary and then there's the, you know, more of the plebeian. Right. There's the, lo- there's the, the lobster. pedestrians. There's the lobster. The and there's like the and ham the sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you wanted the lobster. Yeah. I got it. So, um, so I had lunch with Ricardo. Uh, interesting story. Ricardo has left the movie business. He's now a doctor. Go figure. It's, Anyways. Sounds like he's not intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> um, what kind of doctor? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But he's at the Keck Medical Center. You wow. See. And... Um, what a transition. Yeah, right. yeah, it's interesting. Anyhow, but I remember that, that here I am with a, a, a vice president. I shouldn't say a vice president. At the time, the vice president of Paramount, because that's how naive I was. Um, and then I remember going to a party at Linda Opes, and I met Don Steele. And I asked her what she does. And I can see she bristled a little bit. She was a little perturbed. You didn't ego. know what she was? Yeah, yeah. Had a, she had an ego. And she says, well, I'm, I'm vice president of Paramount, right? And I think to myself, oh, liar. 
Yeah. <laughs> I've already had lunch with the vice president of Paramount, right? So I did not realize there's lots of vice presidents, and there's different divisions, which are presidents and vice presidents and senior vice presidents and regular vice presidents. I had no idea. It's sort of a common. Just to kind of keep us on track moving yeah. along, but so Ruthless People comes out, like I said, to hit. Are you already writing Dirty Rotten Scoundrels by then, or are you just are you hired to write it? Uh, that story was uh, it's an interesting story. Um, um, because that's your next movie, correct? Or the next movie that gets made? Yeah, next movie that gets made. Um, I uh, this is a, a big name dropping story here. So, yeah, so prepare. We're, we're here for it. Prepare. We'll, we'll uh, wear your steel toed shoes. Um. <laughs> I got a call from David Bowie's production company. David Bowie and Mick Jagger did a remake of the Martha and Vandella song, Dancing in the Streets. People thought they had good chemistry. Wouldn't it be great if they did a movie together? Uh, They, of course, thought this is a good idea. Mick told David, you should read the script, Ruthless People, or hire this writer. Uh, Forget about the movie, but the script was great. Yeah. Uh, so Bowie's company called me up and said, do you want to write something for Mick and David? I said, listen, I'm flattered, you know. Uh, I'm already I'm, eating at But I'm eating at the Lamartine. I'm already. What you, <laughs> you better <laughs> offer me the four seasons exactly, if you want to talk to me. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah what's on the main course? Yeah. And, and so they, um, um, but I politely declined it, so I don't write for stars. Um and then we got off the phone, and then I called her back almost immediately and said, listen, I, I don't want to do this, but I do remember seeing a movie where there are two kind of gigolo con artists competing to scam a woman out of you know $50,000 or something. One of them pretends to be um, paralyzed through a psychological traumatic experience and there's only one person can help him, and the other guy has himself paged as that psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and I just remember the scene where they were whacking him on the legs. So, um, about six months later, I get a call from United Artists. Mick Jagger is in town. Uh, he, he, you, you apparently have a movie that he's interested in. Will you come in and pitch us the story? So. Uh, uh, I take the meeting, I go in, and there is uh, Prince, Jag- uh, Prince Jagger, <laughs> Mick Jagger, his agent, Prince Rupert Lowenstein. Uh, what a name. Yeah. And the chairman of, of, of UA, chairman, Paramount, and a senior vice president. And I walk in, I remember it was, it was very flattering is that Mick Jagger was like impressed to meet me. Right which I wasn't expecting, right? Because I'm impressed to meet Mick Jagger. That was cool. The Stones. Yeah. And so that that was uh, a delight, right? Yeah. And somehow I I got the impression that he and I connected there. And um, I pen pitched them the story. uh, And they said, uh, they looked up in some book, again, there was no internet at the time, uh, to find out the name of it was Bedtime Story. And it was with Marlon Brando and David Niven. I remember that part. But it had been made at United Art. I'm sorry, at Universal. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, they kind of looked at each other. There's no way the universe is going to give up the rights to this. So they say, do you want to steal it and cover your tracks? I don't know if those were their exact words, but that's what they'd asked me. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So um, then uh, I went to Disney. And I actually watched the movie with David Hoberman. At the end, he turns to me and says, it's a pretty sexist movie. I said, you can fix that. Um, And then they get back to me and said, no, uh, we can't get the rights. Then I got a call from Eddie Murphy's production company, which they had heard. Eddie had heard that I wanted to do a remake of this movie. Will you do it with Eddie? Who, by the way, is probably the hottest person in Hollywood at that time, right? He was. He was the biggest star in the world. Yeah. And and I said, sure. So I was told that Ned Tannen tried to get it from Universal. Ned Tannen was the uh, president or chairman, I Mm -hmm. think, of Paramount at the time. They couldn't get the rights. Um, I had hooked up with Charles Hirshhorn, who was one of my best friends. He was out of work. And I figured, "Ah, come on, be a producer on this thing with me. And he had worked at Universal. He set up a meeting with Josh Donnan, a senior vice president at Universal. We watched the movie. Again, he turns to me and says, it's a pretty sexist movie. I said, hey, you could fix that. So uh, a day or two later, apparently Josh calls and says, Universal is going to pass. This is, this is how the movie business works. Yeah. It's like everybody wants to make your script except the one that owns it. Okay? <laughs> and they won't sell it to anybody else. Because they might make it, and it'll be a hit, and it'll make them look bad. Right. This sounds weird, but it's exactly no, how the yep. movie No one's interested until egos. someone is, yeah. Yeah. and then that person won't make it. Yeah. So it was very frustrating. But then Josh said, you know, I, I'm not even sure we have the rights to this. Really? So I called my lawyer, Frank Gruber. That who? That Universal ha- actually had the rights? Yeah. Oh. And... Uh, uh, Frank uh, initiates a, a copyright search, which cost $350 at the time. And a couple of days later, comes back, Universal doesn't have the rights. The original writer, Stanley Shapiro, who was the consistent, the creative force behind all those Doris Day movies, mm-hmm. which they call sex comedies, and either Rock Hudson's trying to get Doris into bed or Cary Grant's trying to get Doris into bed, uh, he was a big deal. Uh, Swifty Lazar, the legendary famous agent, was his agent and had in his deal that after 20 years, all rights revert back to him. And it had been 22 years. So he, Was he alive at the time? He was alive. Okay. He was represented not by an agent, by a lawyer, uh, Linda Lichter, who's still out there. Um, get in touch with Linda. Um set up a lunch with Charles Hirshhorn, me, and Stanley Shapiro at the Pink Turtle, which was the coffee shop at the Beverly Welshire. And uh, he was the sweetest guy in the world, funny, fun. Um, something about we were talking about earlier. Um, uh, he would say stuff like, you know, because the guy worked with Cary Grant, guy worked with Rock Hudson. He said, Boy, the stories I could tell. Oh, yeah. sure. But I'm not telling him. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's still employed. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew him for years. Yeah. And I he was going to tell me a story eventually. He never did. Wow. 
never got one thing out of him. Then he passed away. Uh, Mel Shavelson, who was also, uh, he was, I think, uh, a former uh, head of the, uh, president of the, the Writers Guild, and uh, a writer who wrote three times, I don't know, three times as many credits as I had before I was born. But he wrote and directed a movie, I think, called Houseboat with Cary Grant and Sophia Loren. And he told me it was really difficult to direct the movie because Cary Grant was so in love with Sophia Loren. So those are the good stories. Yeah, right? yeah. I hear those stories. But I couldn't get Stanley to come out with anything. We'd end up doing a deal on a napkin. I wrote down a number, pushed it over. Uh, he changed it from 100000 to two hundred, pushed it back. And I said, okay. And that was it. Then uh, the lawyers you know, were, were going to go back and forth. He called me up and says, this is ridiculous. You know, Let's just tell him to call it off, and which we did, and he was right. Because um, lawyers will go back and forth with right. stuff. It's just going to cost you more yeah. money. And yeah. Most of it doesn't. Uh, and now that's just for the story. That's just for the story right, like the idea right, because you still got to write the screenplay. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up uh, hiring somebody to take the script. Um, in putting it into to digitize it, mm-hmm. and then I did a rewrite really in about three days. Again, I was fast. Yeah. Um, we, we need to we need to learn how to do that. Well, yeah. I'm I'm trying to work on being faster. Over <laughs> yeah, here. yeah. Part of it was uh, editing. Uh, I took the 30 minutes out in the beginning, so that gave me lots of room to do anything mm-hmm. and change the ending. And the ending before. She was not a con artist, you know. She just got taken by one of the right, one of the guys, you know, and married him. So that was, you know, the ending. Yeah. Um, you know, the woman marries the guy. And right. You know, it's politically incorrect. Doesn't work today. Um, not to cut you off, but we've had other writers and directors on the podcast. So are you now writing it for someone in mind? Like, are you thinking, Steve Martin? Are you thinking, or are you just oh, no. writing it just to no. just to make it? No. The movie had been written originally with Cary Grant, Rock Hudson, and Doris Day in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but according to Stanley, uh, Cary had asked Rock to do a movie with him. Rock turned him down, so Cary didn't want to work with Rock. Got it. Uh, didn't want to do the movie, and Doris wouldn't do it without them. So it got recast with David Niven in the Cary Grant role, uh, Marlon oh, Brando yeah. in the Rock Hudson role, and Shirley Jones in the... Um, Doris Day role, and it was not a successful movie. Uh, Stanley blamed it on the fact that uh, the movie died in the South, um, large because Marlon Brando was very active in civil rights, and uh, so I don't know if that was true or not. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so um, I uh, got the rights, rewrote it. I think for some reason we went to Orion first and then pulled it back. What happened is, I don't know how much I can tell the story. Uh, <laughs> um, um, I had a package, and you want to make a lot of money, you get a package together and you go to a studio. Here's the script. Teach us. Here are the actors. <laughs> here's the director. Yeah. So here we had the biggest star in the world we've got the script and we have an a-list director 
So you're, I'm not trying to if I, if I can say the story because he's, he's passed away. But it's uh, you as the writer, Eddie Murphy as the star, and then yeah. the director is and who the, passed? And the director, yeah. Okay. And we gave it to Paramount. Did uh, um, Eddie had an exclusive deal at Paramount. Mm-hmm. And I got a call from the vice president, a, a senior vice president there, um, who said, listen, we love the script. We love Eddie. We just don't love that director. And um, there were certain political reasons and right. certain things I can't really That's okay. discuss That's okay. Discuss here. Yeah. Because I, I, even though it's so long. Yeah. They could sure still be respectful. Yeah, we, I'm sure they could. Think we'll get the story I'm without sure they the would have a problem with it. But anyways, but they had a problem with the director. And if they don't go with that director, they're going to have problems with their agency yep. and everything. So good luck. So then we went to Orion. And, and Orion... Um, I can say this. Yeah, I can say this. Make me look bad. Uh, we gave it to Michael Caine. Michael Caine was sort of like doing everything. So yeah. he didn't open a movie. So they had Michael Caine. Michael Caine was interested. What Michael Caine doesn't know is so all of a sudden it's like it went away. And uh, mostly they went away because they were trying to find someone that would open the movie. Right. Um, Steve Martin was supposed to play Michael Caine's part originally. And uh, I remember asking the director, um, well, th- that seems odd. And he says, well, do you know Steve? I said, I do not. He said, well, he's a very uh, sophisticated, erudite man. Yeah, but he's known as the jerk. You right. know, that was his right. most successful movie. Yeah. That's, that was, which was not about a successful, sophisticated, yeah. erudite man. So, um, so uh, uh, apparently Richard Dreyfus had come in to read, uh, and Richard Dreyfus assumed that he would be playing the Lawrence Jameson role, right? The uh, the older of, yeah. the, of the two jigglers, and that Steve would be playing Freddy. And uh, he had not prepared for Freddy, so they let him read. Steve played Freddy, and uh, the director called me up and said, uh, wow. Uh, Steve was really great in that. So we're thinking uh, Steve's going to play Freddy, and now we'll find somebody for Lawrence. Not to backtrack you, but so Eddie Murphy's out. Once oh, that, yeah. once the director in Paramount said no, Eddie Murphy's out. Eddie had an exclusive deal with okay. Paramount, okay. so he couldn't make Got it. You know. They used to have actors out on loan. Not anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not with Eddie. Yep. Okay, so... Um, Anyhow, so uh, they couldn't get somebody to replace the Dreyfus role. Uh, the Dreyfus role. Yeah. Um, they went to John Cleese. Cleese said something like the first half was the funniest script he'd ever read, which I thought was funny because I thought the last half was funnier. Mm, yeah. um, I think he since has come around to saying that he, he uh, um, regrets having passed well, on it. After, after it's a success, yeah. they all have regrets. Yeah, 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 yeah. That happens. That happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. happens really quickly, and, actually. And they, and they have the yeah. excuses too. Right. So, yeah. so anyway, so he, um, uh, so so he went back to Michael Caine, and, uh, and that was it. So, was this Michael Caine after Jaws four or? <laughs> I asked him about that movie. It was after Jaws four. <laughs> Because I said to him, now I got. Because you said it, he was yeah. taking everything, and I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. why he was in Jaws. They brought you out of the water, and yet you're sure it was completely dry. And he said, well, it was some kind of weird material, and they were throwing buckets of water on me, it just rolled off. It would not stay wet. NASA shirt. What's yeah. going on over yeah. there? Yeah, it's funny. 
So you're definitely on fire now. You have two huge comedy hits. Yeah. I mean, the 80s, you're, you're dominating. Yeah. Besides Eddie Murphy. That was fun. You know, uh, I remember uh, when Ruthless People was tested. Um, it tested, I think, like 92%, which, according to them, was the highest right, highest ever of any movie. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that could not be good news. It tells you something about my personality is um, at that screening, you know, we took 92 and, uh, and, and, or maybe the 93, I don't know, it was 90, 93. Anyway, so I think this is great. And, you know, people are smiling, laughing. I'm asking strangers, what do you think of the movie? Oh, it was great. Oh, it was funny. It was, you know, finally uh, got onto the street and a couple of kids, younger guys are getting a BMW. And I said, what do you think of the movie? And they go, eh, it was okay. So I go into depression for about 48 hours. <laughs> because two, two kids, kids that don't yeah. know yeah. shit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they said Bueller is better. Ah. Bueller was out Bueller. at the time. Yeah. I'm surprised that you're old enough to have a license. Like, why would you listen to those two yeah, people? I, yeah, but uh, it's like I, 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 I seem to accept bad news easier. So if uh, you had a praise and accolades from a more. whole room, but one person said, eh, yeah, that, that one would bother you that more. That one would bother me. Oh, okay, right. all right. Yeah, that'll, that'll trigger me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Quick, Xanax. So, <laughs> so, yeah, you just keep popping out hits. So, does my cousin Vinny come next? There was a bad experience. Ah, let's somewhere. talk about the bad. Yeah. Um, As in, like, rejection or a script you loved that didn't get made? It, 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 it started to look really good. There's always these times, wow, it looks really great. Uh, I went in. Now this was um, earlier. This was after I had set Ruth's people up, mm-hmm. and there was a time between when Howard Zeef had lost interest, and there was an agent. Uh, I, I should embarrass him, but uh, I won't. As <laughs> uh, so I asked him, because uh, I just uh, wasn't sure what sort of heat yeah. I had. You know, uh, and, and and God knows, you know, it would be nice to make a lot of money. Good, you know, I wasn't there yet. And I said, how much do you think uh, you could get me on a, a pitch? Mm-hmm. And he said, proudly, $50,000. And I thought to myself, fuck you. I could get more <laughs> than that, right? <laughs> now, I did not have an agent at this time. And one of the reasons was I had met a few agents socially Mm -hmm. at the West Beach Cafe in Venice, which was a place I used to hang out, right? It was within walking distance, and it was a great restaurant. made a lot of good friends, some of which I'm still friends with today. And there was a couple of agents there. And uh, I knew them socially. They knew I was an aspiring writer. None of them asked to read my screenplay. None of them were going to try to help, okay? Uh, Welcome to Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, then Ruthless People gets out, and uh, there's a lot of action and a lot of interest. Uh, And that's when I asked that agent, how much money do you can get me? Mm Mm-hmm. and he said 50 grand. And I thought, no, I, I could definitely do better than that. It's bullshit. Um, 
so I hooked up with the producer. We pitched the script to uh, seven or eight studios in uh, a two-day period. And we had four studios bidding for it. And we ended up going with TriStar, um, which uh, in, in the deal gave me a, a guarantee of $175,000. So instead of fifty grand, I got three and a half times, right, what this agent right. bragged to me he could get me. Um, it also turned out that the most any unproduced writer had ever gotten before was 125000 Uh, So I actually broke a precedent without an agent. And you didn't have to pay the 10%. And there's that, too. And then there's also yeah, yeah. It's those checks. <laughs> <laughs> Extra checks. First class lobster. Yeah. So um, the L.A. Times gets wind of this. David Friendly, who was a, a producer now, uh, but was an entertainment journalist back then, uh, calls me up. Uh, we do an interview. Uh, at the time, you know, I now had money, and I bought this sort of, uh, I bought a townhouse, you know, uh, in Venice, uh, or Ocean Park, actually. And um, they sent out a photographer, and I had one piece of furniture in there, <laughs> which was a... Uh, Minimalist lifestyle. Yeah, Corbusier chaise line. That's right. And um, he took a picture of me. And I remember, this is kind of funny, is yeah, just keep in mind at this point, my parents had been uh, trying to discourage me from pursuing this career. Um, my Interesting, father, as a you, lot more than my mother. Yeah. Because he knew it from the acting side and how hard it was? I yeah, mean, he was yeah. doing it He would it too. say that. He would say uh, that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Channeling my father over oh, okay. here. Okay. That's right. Because right. right. uh, yeah. he was doing it. So either you're sort of hypocritical or it's like, hey, this isn't is hard. I want something more for you. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, listen, we're, we're Jewish, so it's either you'd be a lawyer or a doctor, you know, <laughs> anything else, you know. But that's especially... And they were, you know, born in the 30s. Yeah. Not born, raised in the 30s. Right, you know, right, so, right, right, right. And, you know, things were a lot different for Jews before the war, and, and the idea of that you go and you get a, you know, that there are... The, uh, Plus really, depression and poverty uh, and... Very set path goal yeah. uh, to becoming successful, you right. know, and these were very sort of... Um, you know that, that so the idea that I wanted to be a, a writer director, uh, if they could find an article in the paper and then say, "Look, fifty thousand screenwriters or fifty thousand film students graduate, five get jobs," mm -hmm. they would show me those articles. Right? Yeah, so thanks, they mom. Were trying to be discouraging, <laughs> yeah. Um, to the point where I said, "Listen, if you cannot support what I want to do, let's just not talk about it." So. It then became verboten to discuss my career, right? Mm -hmm. A rule that I introduced. Then things started to happen, and I would tell them. You're one of the five. You know, <laughs> one of the five. Um, but also, my father's a deeply suspicious man, and I have to say I kind of encouraged it a little bit. Um, it was fun. And uh, so I said, listen, I guess someone's interested in a screenplay of mine. Um, but uh, I don't know. I'm getting calls from agents and stuff, and I'm, I'm not interested. Well, why wouldn't you be interested? I've met agents, you know, and they're not that interested in me. Now that I don't need one, now they want to sign me. Yeah. I don't understand this. And 
Um, also, this is a screenplay. Your screenplay is your calling card. Would they going to read a bad script and the agent's going to sell them on the idea it's a good script? Or right. It's not going to make sense. It's not going to make sense. So, um, um, so he's, he, he doubted that, right? That sounded fishy to him. Um, and I said, but, you know, and I was a salesman at one time. I can negotiate, you know, so I don't have a problem with it. And then uh, I think he thought I was making this up. And then when I told him, uh, take a look this weekend uh, or Friday, uh, be sure to look at the L.A. Times entertainment section. Uh, why is that? Because I, there uh, may be an article about me. There may be an article. <laughs> why would there be? Maybe. Well, L.A. Times came out and, yeah. you know, did it because uh, um, uh, did a piece and they wanted to interview me because I had uh, apparently set a precedent, you know, and I did this without an agent. And so this was news. Yeah. And uh, well, 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 why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they print it? <laughs> I said, I don't know. What if like Debbie uh, Downer? What if my dad? I know. What if like Marlon Brando, you know, dies or something that day? Um, I mean, he's <laughs> going to be in the cover. Yeah, well, yeah. I will we'll, get bumped. We'll, okay. Then he says, well, wouldn't they just, you know, reprint it some other time? I don't know. I probably. Yeah. Sound awful interested in hmm. finding ways to discredit. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? Can you be that creative for the positive side? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But it's a, it's a, it's a talent, you know? And so, uh, Friday comes out. And um, uh, the, the calendar section was the entertainment mm-hmm. section of the LA Times. And my picture is on the front page. Uh, on your one piece of furniture. It, it, it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're really and, good with your money. That's, that'll make your dad proud. <laughs> and the lead said something like, irreverent screenwriter does Hollywood, or maverick screenwriter does Hollywood his way. Uh, my parents' attitude towards me changed right In one then day. and there. It was different. Uh, my presence around their house was different. Because you just paid for strange. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, they, uh, my mother would, uh, you know, bought a couple copies. She had one. She kept it in her purse to show people. Nice. Look what my son did. Yeah. I always believed in him. Yes. They always believe in exactly. you. Exactly. Once, once you're successful. Exactly, yeah. And when I brought that up once at a dinner, and they, they, they got a little incensed that, you know, no, 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 that's not true. We always supported you. We always <laughs> yeah, supported yeah, you, you did. Yeah. They're asking my sister, was that true? She goes, no. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> well, I don't know. Did I miss something here? Anyway. Just to keep our time and story going. So okay. we just want to keep it going. So we're at about an hour and 15. Um, probably try to keep it about an hour and a half. So we got about 15 left. I would love to take the, at we least go- 10 minutes because of... How much I love my cousin Vinny. Okay. Can we at least get through my cousin Vinny and then we'll do and a then wrap some, up? And then some future stuff. As long stuff? as you want. Yeah. yeah. If you okay. want to go for two hours and cut it down to an hour. Okay. It's fine. Up to cool. you. Okay. Yeah. So um, I got no we, other plans. Today. We yeah. <laughs> we I have to yeah I've got about another fifteen to twenty. So if we could, um, I would love to reserve this last chunk of time. I I, I got to hear about my cousin Vinny. Either as much as you're willing or able to share how it you know first idea how, what was the process. Um, all, all of that good stuff. Uh, I did a deal at 20th Century Fox, a three-picture deal. I had already read, uh, written uh, Love Potion Number 9. Uh, 
which I also so, like. So we'll save that for the second. Yeah, we're second gonna br- have to bring you back. So okay, okay? the sequel. Right. The right. sequel. Yeah, yes, right. yes. And uh, uh, and then at one point I went in uh, and I pitched two stories, two story ideas to uh, Roger Birnbaum and Joe Roth. And uh, and one was my cousin Vinny, and the one the other one was called Joe Safety. And they decided to go with Joe Safety, which was more of an action movie. Mm. You know, um, it's a cute idea. And uh, so, so my phone is buzzing here. Yeah, that's Sorry. okay. We're fine. Was Joe Safety ever made? Let me just <laughs> should I just turn it off. Yeah, it's pretty. Minimal. No, it, okay, we'll we'll just cut it out anyway. Yeah. So do what you got to do. There we go. Sorry, okay. no problem. No, you're good. Uh, it's just buzzing. Um, so they wanted to go Joe Safety, and I just said, "Nah, I want to do Vinny." So they go, oh, "Okay, okay, we'll do Vinny." So you had enough clout at that time to actually start asking for th- stuff, and then them saying yes. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I wanted to do some research because I did not – I didn't really know what the story was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just knew it was um, – you know, I had one idea. There was a comedian then named Sam Kinison. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Sam Kinison was really good with hecklers and would hum- humiliate them. Yeah. And so in my mind, I wanted that character to be kind of a street guy, uh, and he would uh, – they would get witnesses up there, and he wouldn't just slowly take them down. It's like berate them. Yeah. Berate them, yeah. humiliate them, devastate them, right? It's um. <laughs> all making sense now. Yeah. yeah. I did say that. Would you say that? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> this, this came from, now when I was a stereo salesman, um, there was a girl I knew who wanted to come in and buy a stereo. Mm-hmm. And um, she came in on a Saturday, and she came in with a guy named Ernie uh, because she didn't drive. She didn't have a license. And she came on Saturday, and I'm a commission salesman. So this is where I'm – this is going to cost me money, right? And, you know, <laughs> and Saturday you could, you know, you could work one day a week and live off Saturday. Saturday was a very busy day. And I told her not to come on a Saturday, and she comes in the Saturday, right? So I figure, okay, let's just do this quickly, right? So, um, and I'm going to put together, uh, I put together a very nice stereo system for her, and I gave her uh, the deal as cheap as I could possibly uh, give it. And um, you had to go to the manager and have him sign off on it, right? Um, so at one point, I'm showing her, uh, and then she wants to listen to the speakers because Ernie says, tells her, whispers something. Well, can I just listen to it once? And I said, well, sh- let's go. <laughs> Again, and now it's taking time. I'm, I'm getting in the way. So I put them on, and uh, Ernie's whispering something in her ear. She says, do you have anything that's bigger? I said, well, you know, uh, you ever heard this? Uh, size doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, bigger isn't always better. It's what you do with it that counts. Right? That ended up going to ruthless people, right? <laughs> that line. And uh, Ernie, Ernie then speaks up and says, um, that's not true. I said, excuse me? I mean, where do 
do you come with this uh, enlightened thought? And he says, well, I study acoustical engineering at Valley College. And I said, well, then you should know better. Boop, we move on, right? Move on. I get all the stuff together. I'm putting the cartridge in the tone arm. And she's, she, she's getting upset. And I said, what's the matter? She says, well, he's telling me you're ripping me off. So it's one of those no good deed goes unpunished, right? right? So I, I say to Ernie, Ernie? Yeah. Are you familiar with the manufacturer of this loudspeaker? And Ernie says, no. <laughs> You're not familiar with Advent, the largest manufacturer of loudspeakers in the entire world? Yeah. I don't know where you get this knowledge. Ernie, do you know what kind of enclosure this is? No, you don't. <laughs> is it base reflex, passive radiator, air suspension? I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> you claim to study acoustical engineering. You don't know the most elementary, the most basic parameter or loudspeaker of design? Where were you in the first day of class, Ernie? Homesick? Did someone rip out page one in your textbook? And then Ernie said, I'd like to speak to the manager. And then the girl turned to him and said, shut up, Ernie. Okay. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so that's the that's... kind of scene that I wanted. Right. In my cousin Vinny. And that's the scene that became, do the laws of physics cease to, to exist, exist on, on your stove? stove? <laughs> <laughs> that's, like, that's like you're doing with the accent. I too. love yeah. On your that. stove, did you get these beans from the guy who sold Jack his magic? You know. Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> you, did you get these grits from the guy who yeah. sold Jack his magic yeah. beans? Uh, um, so you had a, a real moment that is personal from you. That at least was the the spark of the spark. The essence yeah, so I remember a whole character. movie based around that scene. Right, um, brilliant. Then I did some research um, in the studio, paid for it, and I flew down to New Orleans, uh, rented a Ford Probe, uh, uh, drove up through Mississippi, uh, then went over. I'm not sure what highway it was. Over to Alabama, drove down, drove down. I, I spent a night in Jackson, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a ticket at gunpoint, uh, in, I think Alabama. Seriously. Yeah. Um, for speeding. Yeah. Yeah. At gunpoint. 80, 80 miles an hour. Oh. And show me your hands. Show me your hands. Okay. Yeah. Here's Which is hand. also in the movie after they steal the tuna fish. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I had a, a little, what they call pearl recorder and a little tiny cassette recorder, which I would keep with me and I would, you know give little notes and so when that happened that happened uh i uh the car hit um there was somewhere on the divided highway where there was new asphalt that was put down and it was like that thick it's like over an inch and when you hit it at 75 80 miles an hour the car actually went out of control and then it went into the median divider mm-hmm. which where there was all this water this wave of water and then the car stuck in the mud Okay, I'm out in the bonies. <laughs> Within 30 seconds, a pickup truck is coming the opposite way. He stops, clearly sees me, yells out, uh, I'll get you out of there for 100 bucks." I said, deal. He comes in, comes out, and he's, he's these waiters, hooks up the car, pulls it out, and give him his money, and I go. And the car was going boom, 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 boom. And then later... Um, I took it to a shop, and there was a black guy who had a star in his tooth. He became a character named Star. Uh, he said, well, you probably got mud in your tie. 
I said, mud <laughs> in the tire? How does Let me mud ask get- you a question. How do we get mud the into the tire? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is and, so good. And he smiles. It's just a figure of speech, you know. Yeah. It's just, it means that the mud is, is inside the, the wheel. Throws the balance out. Yeah, throws yeah. the balance out. So that becomes, all that stuff becomes part of the movie, right? I went into a restaurant in uh, Butler, Alabama, and it just said, Breakfast, lunch, dinner. If you say anything, what it just gives you the price, you know? You're just going to eat whatever they, they serve you, you know? Uh, I remember there's one thing I love to do when I travel in, in any country is to go into a supermarket. Um, I do like to cook, but it's also interesting to say every supermarket in every country, there is nothing that's like in your supermarket. Mm-hmm. And there was also uh, in Butler, in this in the small supermarket that they had, um, you know, there's that little sign that tells you, you know, spices, right. coffee. And this one said grits. They had an actual grits department, right? So it's like grits, right? Yeah. So grits is going to part of the story, right? <laughs> so, uh, and I go over and there's all kinds of grits. And there's instant grits, regular grits and everything. So uh, um, I remember, you know, ordering some grits. And so all this, you know, becomes important in the store. Yeah. yeah. I remember calling a fr- calling for my messages and talking to this woman. She was a Carol Davis, who was a friend at the time, kind of a hip hop artist, an actress. Mm-hmm. And I called her. She's a you know a New Yorker, and I described this little town I was in. And she said, "I'll bet the Chinese food there is terrible." <laughs> right? Which Marissa yeah. Tomei says yeah. with the mud. Okay, <laughs> that, that one's go. That's a good line. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so it's fun. So you're getting yeah. all these jokes though, and all these awesome, memorable scenes. Yeah, the story of the murder and the lawyer, and the like, was that already in the in the process? Did you already have like a loose outline? Um, a little bit. I wanted it to be a murder case. Okay. Uh, well, sorry. Let's go back. Like, to was Vinny 19... always Italian? Let's go back <laughs> much, much earlier. And this okay. was the idea for the movie. Mm-hmm. I forgot about this. Um. When I was 19, I went backpacking through Europe, and um, you'd meet a lot of different people. Um, it was really the time of my life, and I met a couple of older women, 25-year-olds. Whoa, okay. And they were teachers in Los Angeles. One of them, Andy, Andy Reifman, was engaged to Fred Fenster. She's now Andy Fenster. And I met Fred when I came back. Fred had gone to UCLA, Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, went to law school, um, had taken the bar. And so I asked him, what happens if you don't pass? He says, we take it again. What happens if you don't pass then? Take it again. How many times can you take it? As many times as you want. <laughs> What's the most someone has taken it, failed, and finally passed? He said, 13 times. Whoa. It's funny because law students all seem to know that the story. answer to that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't want to be that guy, you know. So I said, wouldn't it be funny you're driving through, like, the deep south and you're arrested for a murder you didn't commit and the only guy you can use is that guy, right? The only lawyer you can use is that guy. For me, six times was the magic number. Yeah, so I changed it, you know, uh, from 13 to six because I like the idea that he's not the worst. Right. Okay. But But he's also not the best. He's not the best. There was something in the movie which unfortunately got cut out, and it is a slightly different movie with one line. Because when they asked, um, I think it was Stan, asked Vinny, why did it take you so long to pass? 
Vinny says, I'm a, I'm a little dyslexic. That got cut out of the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the next scene, Vinny meets with the judge. The judge gives him a book on Alabama criminal court procedure. You're supposed to read this over the weekend. It's like this thick. I remember, yep. Okay? And then another scene, which got cut, uh, where he's struggling through. You can see he looks at a word, and we see the word is the letters are jumbled, dissolved them less jumbled, dissolved them unjumbled. We pan to the next word, which is jumbled. Okay? So this tells you Vinny's going to have to wing it. Uh, but that he's not dumb. But right. he's dyslexic. And some people um, who are dyslexic have this fear that um, they're considered to be um, uh, uneducated. What's a politically Slower incorrect word? Or, yeah. Retarded. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's politically incorrect, but it's a good word. Uh, so what's that? Is that the, the wake police come? No. <laughs> They're here. You can't right. use that And that, that was word. a medical yeah. term. At, 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 yes, right, 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 right. So, um, you know, so there was a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, and he wants to – it's part of his, his character is mm-hmm. that he doesn't want anybody's help. Right, because so, Marissa Tomei tries to help him, and he goes, don't read this book. And yeah. he closes it and takes exactly. it back. Exactly. Do, right. do you want me to read it for you? I'm not a fucking child, you know. You know, that that was that may have been cut. And then at the very end, you can see all this stuff sort of fits together. Right, right, right. Uh, and she says, you know, he says, I you know, wish I had done it, you know, all by myself. Something like that. Yeah. And yeah. she says, oh, my God, what a fucking nightmare. <laughs> you win one case after another. And at the end, you got to say to somebody, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> when they're driving away. Oh, what a fucking <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> <Right>. Shut up. <laughs> Um, so th- that's you know has a lot to do with his character. It was just that one line. Interesting. The director cut it out because he did not show know how to show dyslexia. And I'm thinking one, you don't have to show it, but two, if you show it the way I described it, he said, well, "Is that one of those things where you darken out all the other letters and you have that one?" I said, "Well, you could do it that way." Oh, I hate that. Well, then don't do it that way. So, but it ended up getting caught because right. he didn't know how to show it. it. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Think, thinking so, back through it. Yeah. And it made you a little more sympathetic to his character, too. It also explained that he's not stupid. No, he's right. not, even a little bit. Yeah. He just yeah. doesn't know the... I just always took it as he didn't know the political procedures. Yeah. But he knew how to argue and he knew truth. Yeah. And that's way more of a skill. Yeah. He had a certain intrinsic intelligence. Yes. Okay. And it is said in a sort of set up uh, when Bill says, you remember there was so-and-so, it was a wedding and or there was a wedding and they had, what's his name, that magician come. Alakazam. I'm or Alakazam. Yeah. I'm sitting back with Vinny. And he could figure it all out. He's right? prominent. That, to me, is a guy. He's smart. He knows how to figure this shit out. Right. right? Street smart. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I used the word street smart, which I always thought, it was, let me do a literal, an actual literal interpretation of street smart. Mm-hmm. It literally has something to do with tire marks on asphalt, the actual street itself ends up cracking the case. Right? So. Yeah. And um, the, I, I don't, obviously the main plot of that movie is the murder case, but you put these delicious, the can't get any sleep. Yeah. Uh, the idiot yeah. who wants to fight him for $200. Right. Yeah. The judge who's about to like, I, I get that smart writing, but how, how much of that was just coming up with it because you knew, right, you knew good structure versus did somebody want to fight you? 
was there were you not able to get any sleep? Did that that come from real life or, or imagined? Um, what had happened? A friend of mine, you know, when when we went to make the movie, um, the uh, casting director was David Rubin, who's a very good casting director. I think he's president of the Academy right now. Um, and I remember getting a list of something like maybe ten actresses. Uh, I can remember four of them. Uh, I think number one was Carol Davis, the woman who said, uh, you know, about the Chinese food is terrible, right? Uh, she was an actress. She looks the part. She, you know, talks tough. Um, she would have been good. Um, a woman named Lisa Gay, who uh, I had met through a friend who had starred in these toxic Avenger movies. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she's done other stuff. But I remember meeting her in New York. We met to play pool, and she brought her own pool cue, right? So that made Lisa good. I wanted Lisa to play pool, right? And be good at it and be a hustler. And she knows about cars as well. Yeah, yeah. So so that's where that started is that she hustled because they needed some money, right? And then the guy wouldn't pay her. Uh, Vinny's actually supposed to be an ex-boxer. He was also supposed to be about six foot four or six foot five and a big guy. He was supposed to look like a thug. That was the idea. Did you have a person in mind for that role? (laughs) Weirdly enough, the guy's not that big. I didn't know he was that big, but uh, 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 Lou Reed. Oh, okay. You know, I don't know. I saw pictures of Lou Reed. He looked big. Yeah. And he talks like this, you know. Uh, I don't know if he was an actor. Uh, Robert De Niro, who, again, is not tall. Um, but can come off threatening. Was De Niro ever on like a short list for my cousin Vinny? Oh, De- uh, he was on the first list, and I oh. remember meeting <laughs> with uh, uh, Roger Birnbaum and Joe Roth on casting. Vinny. Yep. And so, who's your first choice? I said Robert De Niro. And Birnbaum does this. Ugh. <laughs> it's just you know, De Niro's not funny, and his movies don't make money. Okay. So I said... Now all he does is comedies right now. <laughs> yeah, and the only ones that make money. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so people get it wrong sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So, but back then, you know, I said, well, you don't understand. He was considered to be a comic actor. Yeah. He said, really? His first two movies were comedies. Really? Yeah. Greetings and Hi, Mom. Mm-hmm. Now, arguably, Brian De Palma comedies, yeah, may not be perceived as actual comedies. Right. Okay. Because, you know, he's he's not a real comic talent in that regard. But he was also likened to Jack Lemmon. Hmm. Uh, and then uh, not only did I win that argument, if there was a debate coach sitting in the room, mm-hmm. I win the argument. The movie still doesn't get made. Right. And the coup de grace was uh, Midnight Run. A, it was successful. B, it was funny. Mm-hmm. C, he was great in it. And Roger said something like, you know, it didn't really – perform as expected. Whatever that means. Yeah. Yeah, whatever that means. So uh, De Niro never even got uh, an offer. Mm. So uh, so what did Joe Pesci do? S- did Then uh, Danny DeVito was attached ah. because I did a movie with Danny. Yep. And I'm thinking, as a guy, I just wanted a threatening presence, you know, when they came in. It was... Uh, also based on a guy I knew um, who sounded a little dopey, but he was six foot five and looked scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was actually a bright guy. Yeah. And uh, 
but he sounded a little dopey. So that's kind of what I wanted, okay? Um, so Danny DeVito, I'm sorry, he's not going to look threatening to anybody else. He has a gun, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that just didn't make sense. Danny was attached to the project for about two minutes. I had a meeting with him. Asked him, do you want to do when you want to act or direct? Or he goes, I don't know. I don't know. So then he sits down. He says, the script just doesn't go. I said, so do you want more go? And he laughed. And that was pretty much the entire meeting. I didn't know what he wanted. So then uh, he dropped out of the project because he thought I was not enthusiastic about rewriting it. He was right. (laughs) But I didn't know what he wanted. I don't know what more go meant. Um, so, uh, then, uh, Jim Belushi. I could see that. Was sort of, yeah, I mean, he could have done it. And, uh, Jim Belushi, uh, was cast in a movie called League of Their Own. Yeah. Uh, he was given a pay or play deal. Do you know what that is? Pay or play means if we're going to make you the offer, you want to shoot the movie during, let's say, September through October. And if the movie drops out, we'll pay you. I'm assuming that was for Tom Hanks's part? Yes. Got it. Okay. So the movie fell apart. He, he pay or play is like, you, you now get paid to do nothing. It's a great job. Um, <laughs> I want that job. And they said, in lieu of taking that, uh, here's the screenplay. My cousin Vinny, do you, would you want to do that instead? And so uh, he said no. So he passed on it, didn't that? Uh, another person who was up for it was, uh, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? I'm drawing a blank. Comedian guy who talks like this. Uh, Andrew Dice Clay. Andrew Dice Clay. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. And that was and a guess. So Andrew Dice Clay, I figured, okay, okay, that, that could be interesting. It's possible. Um, but the vice president at Fox, um, who had, who was also a friend, I won't name names, um, had met him socially and he insulted her. And she called me up. She was very upset. Do we have to have him? I said, no, cut him off. Gone. Uh, he has a reputation for being actually a very nice guy, mm-hmm. but he insulted her and she's maybe a little sensitive. So right. anyhow, but that's He's how, probably trying to make a joke. That's how, yeah, land. that's how, yeah, exactly. That's so. the end of that movie. That's it. <laughs> that was gone. So, uh, I'm done with this guy. I'm done with this guy. Next. So what happened is um, I sat down with uh, uh, Doug Knoll, who's an old friend from high school, who went to law school, became a litigator, uh, ended up becoming uh, uh, deputy attorney general of California, uh, which is a state prosecutor. And so I met him for a number of lunches, and it quickly turned into, I said, what class do you learn procedure in college. He says, there is no procedure class. Really? Well, then how do you know? He says, well, you either go to court and you watch or the firm that hires you teaches you. Which is right in the movie there. Word for word. Word for word, yeah. And I said, so he's not at a firm. I said, this is great. So this is like, you know, in in, in any uh, standard writing manual, on how to write screenplays. You know, you've got your protagonist, you've got a goal, and you have hurdles along the way. So one of those hurdles uh, was the fact that he doesn't know procedure and he's going to get in trouble. So anything I didn't understand, 
Okay. How do you plea? Well, what does that mean? Guilty or not guilty? Well, if you don't know, he doesn't know the answer to that question, right? So I wasn't sure. What does that mean, plea? Is that guilty? I need the uh, multiple choice answer version of it, right? Um, and we, uh, so, so that pretty much set uh, the movie. And I thought, this is going to be great because uh, in this movie, we're going to explain things that nobody understands who watches courtroom dramas. Right. Uh, also, you know, when I would ask him, I, I now when I, I watch movies and I see people just making up stuff in court, I say, you can't do that, you know? <laughs> Because so, it felt truly like as much as a movie can make it so, yeah. maybe a few good men, there's a few other really solid like dramas out there that are courtroom procedure. It felt real, even though I didn't know much, and I yeah. learned a lot. And it was funny, too. And it was yeah. funny. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was the best part. Well, now it turns out, uh, lawyers, um, I remember about a year after the movie was out, uh, I was in Aspen. And a friend of mine, Victor Sherman, who puts on this um, criminal court uh, seminar in Aspen. And uh, prominent uh, criminal lawyers and litigators mm-hmm. come and speak on panels and people asking questions. And uh, Victor had not seen Vinny. Uh, and he was a friend of mine, right? And he says, hey, nah, I don't like those movies, you know, because they're never, they're, they're never accurate, you know. They're never. They're just ridiculous, you know. So, I said, "Well, no, this one is is, is different." And he went, eh, okay. So, I went to the seminar, and then he says afterwards, "There's some people getting together at um, um, Robert Shapiro's. Uh, I think it was Robert Shapiro's uh, condo in Aspen." So uh, there was a bunch of sort of prominent lawyers there, uh, criminal attorneys. And one of them asked me what I do. And I said, Miss Greenwriter, what have you done? I said, put this people, dirty run scoundrels, and my cousin Vinny. When I said my cousin Vinny, it was like magnetic bobbleheads in that room. And all of a sudden, every head looked over at me. What did what, what, you have to do with my cousin Vinny? I said, I wrote it, produced it. And uh, <laughs> they were beside themselves. And one guy says, I teach law uh, at the University of Utah. And I tell my students... What you're going to learn here is what you didn't learn in My Cousin Vinny. Now, what that has been repeated to me over and over and over and over now, now it's almost 30 years, um, that, that this movie is, is the only movie that seems to follow procedure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you see in movies that they'll, and TV shows that they'll follow procedure better. They're more and more and more and more accurate. You set the bar, sir. But, but sort of set the bar in that sense. In that sense. So, but uh, but to me, that's all like writing gold. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's like you're just discovering stuff. And, and my last question on yeah. this, because we're, we're approaching two hours, and we probably should wrap it up. Well, I still have that joke. I was I, the joke one, but um, how much of the uh, how much car knowledge do you have because of how much that plays into the the not guilty. Um, my earliest, uh, what am I, am I, I wanted to do when uh, I wanted to design and build race cars or high performance cars when I was a teenager. Um, I just, uh, did not have the confidence to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think I would have been good at it, but I was fascinated with this stuff. And when I was 16 or 17, I could give you 
the weight, engine displacement, horsepower options, and carburation of every single car sold in America. So, wow. um, and, and, and other useless information, which... Uh, not true. All of a sudden... It kept two people who are not guilty uh, from going to the death sentence. Yeah. <laughs> so it came up in my cousin Vinny, this is going to be streetwise, stuff on the street, I'll have some car stuff in here. And so that stuff came off the top of my head. Dang. So It was the lawyer stuff that you needed the, the help with. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I thought the car magazines would bring it up. You know, you know, rather than the law community, and, right? Uh, the, the law community definitely embraced it. Um, I've been able to use that. It gets mentioned all the time. Um, I mean, God, it got mentioned with uh, Giuliani when he was dripping hair dye. You know, um, talking about Vinny, uh, Merrick Garland put it in a judgment. Um, uh, Scalia had mentioned that, that it was his favorite legal movie. So um, I was going to D.C. I write a, a note to the information officer at the Supreme Court of the United States and set up, you know, with the link. Apparently he's a fan of the movie, and uh, if he wants to meet me, I'd love to meet him. So I ended up, and I'm in D.C. It's nothing like getting to a cab and going, the Supreme Court, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's and awesome. then you're like, you're dropping up at the Supreme Court. You're walking up the steps. You can't help but go, this is out of a movie, right? And, uh, but they didn't go to the front door. They had, they right. had, they had the VIP the section door. for you. I got yeah. you. And uh, uh, it was like within 60 seconds, I'm in uh, Scalia's outer office. And then I, I wait a, a minute or two and uh, I meet him in his chambers. You know, Even as you were telling us the story about my cousin Vinny, you kind of got a little more excited so when ruthless people came out you said you hated it you're sweating profusely when when that movie comes out now you've had a couple wins under your belt were you like okay what i wrote is on screen like were you were you happy with the final product hated it seriously <laughs> when i saw Vinny, the rough <laughs> it's not what draft, i thought you were gonna say <laughs> when i saw the the there was the uh, not the first assembly but but in an earlier like a test screening yeah, yeah no no what's the test screen it was an earlier edit um I thought it was unreleasable. Wow. Um, and I watched it with my editor on Love Potion Number 9. Uh, she said, well, no, no, we finished the movie. It, it gets better. It really, it gets a lot better. <laughs> yeah, you should finish it. Um, when I watched it, I actually had a couple friends over to my house. I had it on videotape. I put it on. And their response to it, um, I could feel it and see it through them. Okay. And that's a fascinating experience. So if you're watching the movie with an audience, it's a different experience. And you feel the energy. You feel there's like this electricity in the air. And you know when the joke is coming. You know you can hear you, you, you huge laughter. Yeah. Right? It was great. It was great. So, so are uh, you just bad at watching your own movies by yourself? Well, I know it's Or are you saying all of those people are, have terrible taste who also gave Marissa an award and has tons of accolades? No, I'm fine. I, it's hard for me to see <laughs> Oh, well, that's that. good. I'm fine. I'm fine with, with, oh. with, with, with the good stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, it's, just, it's just I know what's missing. That's all. So, uh, you know, and, and when you see something missing, you'll see it in one of the, uh, uh, one of the reviews and we'll point it out to you. So when you see Pesci out and about, are you like, it could have been De Niro, buddy. You could, That's right. could have been somebody else. <laughs> yeah. 
You were uh, see, and it's hard for me to even imagine that movie without without those two. Yeah, I know you you were there for all the other stuff. And when you're a writer, you can do that, of right? Course. You know, you have that originally. I mean, uh, with and ruthless people, you know, I imagine somebody different than Danny. Danny's character's playing a what is essentially a gigolo, you mm-hmm. know, and Danny DeVito, you know, that's a little odd. So, but the oddity isn't that the comedy, or you know. Like the it's fact a different that kind of a comedy. Okay. I mean, if you're being ridiculous, right? Funny, like a five you know, three rather, balding yeah. gigolo. That's Danny's know. not five three. Yeah, yeah. Is that, he's not that tall. No, no. <laughs> five feet, maybe. No, no. He's not even five feet tall. Danny's pretty small. Yeah, Danny's pretty small. I mean, if you had told me he was four feet tall, <laughs> um, he's closer to that. I don't know, but he, I think he says four ten or something. Yeah. yeah. But uh, when you when you look up uh, actors, they they all had an inch or two or three or three. Yeah. Well, um, I would love to keep talking, but we're hitting our two hour mark, and you uh, sort of already. An- but maybe I, we would. I still have that story. Oh, know? let's finish all with right. the story yeah. because we normally end with what would you have done if you haven't done screenwriting? But yeah. you kind of already told us you might have built race cars, possibly, yeah. possibly as a possibility. Yeah. But since we know that, since you shared that. Give us, uh, give us. Let's end on uh, on this on this anecdote. I mean, there's a number of funny stories, but uh, uh, on this one, um, when I was watching that uh, the first cut of Vinny, mm-hmm. and I could see that uh, at one point one of the kids loses faith in Vinny, and he goes with the public defender, who has a stutter. Who has a stutter. Now, ironically, Andy Reifman who became Andy Fenster, had a brother who was a stutterer. And she said, stuttering jokes are not funny. This is something I was told when I was 19. Stuck in my head. I would never, ever make a stuttering joke, ever. Nor did I have it in this movie. So when that came out, I felt betrayed a little bit. Well, now what I had written, and I even wrote it in the script, that there was stuttering, stammering. But he was having an anxiety attack. And in an anxiety attack, uh, you may stutter, you may stammer, you may lose your thought, Catch you your may hyperventilate, yeah, yeah. you may sweat, you may hold yourself, you may feel near faint. To me, hilarious, okay? Mm-hmm. A guy who's just, he's having a breakdown. Because there, he talks right? fine one-on-one. It's yeah. when he gets in front of everybody, he gets nervous. So I'm figuring, okay, I'm going to get into trouble. Eventually, I don't remember any of the reviewers bringing that up. They did bring up this is an especially funny, politically incorrect joke, but uh, but 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 uh, but they did point out that it was a very funny scene. And uh, so, I have a deal at Fox. I'm driving in one day. And the movie's out, and there's a guy with a placard it says, "My cousin Vinny, unfair to stutterers." And the NSA, National Stuttering Association. So sure enough, you know, doesn't know who I am. And I go in and I go into my office. I have an assistant. I have a development executive. And my assistant comes in and she's wide-eyed. She says, there's been a guy who's been calling here. Um, was he still out front? I said, yeah, he's got these out there picketing against Vinny. You know right? And she says, well, he's been calling like 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 every five minutes. And I tell him, you're not in, you're not in. So I said, okay, well, next time he calls, put him through. You're going to talk to him? I said, yeah. I said, what are you going to tell him? Oh, you'll listen in. Yeah. 
Okay, and tell Jamie too. So uh, I go. I sense a stereo story coming okay. on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, I sit down, and literally within like a minute or two, um, she opens my door and she's covering the phone. It's him, right? It's him. So I said, "Get Jamie." So they're both standing in the hallway with phones, right? Listening in, and I pick up the phone, and I say, "Hi, this is Dale." And uh, the guy proceeds to tell me with a stutter that he's got a problem with the movie. And I said, listen, I can see where this is going. You don't have to go any further. You're upset that the movie and the how it portrays a stutter. And he said, yes. I said, I'm upset too. I would never do that. Uh, and that's not the scene I wrote. Okay, The scene I wrote is about a guy who's having an anxiety attack. He's having a breakdown. And a little stuttering and stammering may be part of that. He's not a stutterer, per se, uh, but he was supposed to be anxious, hyperventilating, sweating, uh, losing where his, losing his thoughts. Um, now, as a matter of fact, and a stutterer is not going to suddenly just start stuttering there. He would stutter all the time, and the guy says, yeah, that's correct. So it's not, you know, it's wrong, you know. But you don't have a problem with me, and you don't have a problem with the studio. You have a problem with the director, Jonathan Lynn, and his home phone number is. (laughs) (laughs) And you gave it to him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I should never uh, upset you. I know. (laughs) Wow. That is great. Well, if you're going to upset him. Take him to lunch. Do you, uh, or do you want us to put his phone number in like a little bottom <laughs> yeah, third on this yeah, interview right here? Yeah. <laughs> that's a good story. Yeah, that's funny. God, oh, the three one zero. Two three one zero. No, 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 no. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll believe it out. Um, oh my gosh, I want to get more, but we're at two hours, and I got to kind of wrap it up. Um, Dale, thank I'm you. bring you back, Dale. Okay, I'll bring you back. If, if you're, if this okay. comes out and you don't hate it which you probably will because yeah. it's about anything that goes well you don't seem to like. Uh, That's not fair. Uh, <laughs> huge not success. Fair. There's, there's no way to in- reinterpret this. You know, Very true. Sure, so. sure. Yeah. that is that is true. Well, If, if um, I may hate I may hate myself, you know. Don't do that. No. We, we okay. like your stories. Yeah, all right. Um, we'll do a quick sign-off here unless there was any last little... No, I love that. I mean, I would love to keep going. We can do like five hours, but we'll uh, we'll have the part two. Yeah. We'll do yeah. from Love well, Potion. Lots num- of interesting we'll do stories. from Love Potion number nine to present day next. Yeah. That'll that'll be season that'll be uh, that'll be towards the end of this season. And we've got Love a few it. few other people that we're probably bringing back for yeah. a round two as well. Thank so. you for coming in though. Really appreciate it. Right. Thank you. So fun. All right. Um this let's is fine. uh for everyone who's watching us um, on YouTube, appreciate that. Hit the likes smash that subscribe button or at least share what you see here today if you liked it um and thank you to everybody else who listens to us on uh google play itunes, iTunes spotify what else are we on everything everything you can find everything. us just about anywhere. anywhere all right we'll kick off some music here and thank you to everyone who keeps tuning in and watching we got a great lineup uh this whole season i uh, hope you're enjoying some of our guests and we will see you next week <laughs>